Hello, friends. Welcome to this interview um, hosted here by Exponential with Pete Scazzaro, the author of the newly published book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And uh, we're very much looking forward to this conversation to have with Pete. Um, yeah, so welcome, Pete. And uh, uh, I was on his staff for 10 years. Um, deeply mentored, um, influenced by him, his life, his ministry, and have um, grown. The more I've gotten to know him and the more I've journeyed with him, have um, admired him more. And um, so this book is something that's been uh, really meaningful for me as I was reading it. And uh, just because I know the man and I know his family and I know the ways in which he has authentically tried to live out um, following Jesus in the pages that he wrote about. And so, Pete, uh, you've written uh, a few books now on emotional health and contemplative spirituality, um, really to birth a prophetic call to the church. I'd love to hear from you, like, why, why this book and why did you write this book and what is it for? Yeah, so I, Emotionally Discipleship, I, I wrote it because there was a need now, the year 2021, to synthesize a biblical theology that I've written about in different, I've written different books for different purposes for this, you know, movement, uh, which I, I believe is of God to help, you know, build a mature church that can multiply deeply changed disciples. And so it was a need to put a biblical theology for pastors, leaders uh, in one place to build a culture that deeply changes people for the sake of the world. And so I'd written a book 18 years ago called The Emotionally Healthy Church. Uh, and some of that was, I, I just, that book was outdated and it needed to be completely redone and it ended up being an 80% revision. Uh, but what the issues we're confronting today and how do we build a culture, a counterculture in the church that really is distinct from the world? What are the biblical uh, ingredients of that? Because it's really, this is really offering a new, kind of like a new operating system, uh, an extreme makeover of the underneath how we're building leaders and disciples in the church. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that. I mean, you were definitely giving a very clarion call to the church today. Um, I loved, you started the book with kind of a little bit about your story and some people may have not heard about your story of how the emotionally healthy discipleship movement was birthed. Do you mind giving us just a quick snapshot of your background, um, uh, a brief history on your own life and journey, which led you down this path to really explore these themes? Yeah, yeah. We, we were, we planted a church in 1987 here in New York, uh, but by year six or seven, we'd really hit a wall, uh, personally and in the church. Uh, we were at that point multiplying churches. We planted three or four at that point. But we, the, the you know, from uh, my own personal life being exhausted, uh, one of our congregations had a split. I just, I was, you know, emotionally exhausted by that, depressed. And then uh, my marriage wasn't going well. And uh, it was clear that the shallowness of the discipleship that I was observing in people was actually in my own life as well. And so it was this crucible of a wall that uh, God just met Jerry and I, uh, and uh, we realized that there was a gigantic, some missing elements in our discipleship. And we really had the best of you know, seminary leadership conferences. Uh, and we were growing in number, but they, we were multiplying the same old crises and problems over and over again. And so we had this encounter with God around it um, and that, that emotional health and spiritual maturity can't be separated. And it really launched us on this journey in 1996, actually, to wrestle with the biblical foundations of what's missing in classic evangelical discipleship that's hindering our developing of people who are mature 
become mother, becoming mothers and fathers of the faith. And so really is out of our personal pain. We really, I mean, we could have easily been another casualty. Like many of our friends became casualties from when we started. Um, but really it was a grace of God that just reached out and, and uh, didn't just deliver us, but really got us on a journey that has been such a, so wonderful for the last 26 years. And so tremendous. And so, you know, I'm a pastor. So my, my work is, you know, biblically, you know, what, how did, what, what was missing here? And so it's that journey that we've been really focused on um, and bringing to the wider church, how, what, what biblical pieces are we missing that are actually just torpedoing uh, the, the movement of God and leaders and churches uh, around the world long-term. So it really did launch out of originally personal pain and walls that we hit um, and meeting God. And, and, and actually all this stuff was worked out in the crucible of, uh, you know, you're in New York city. We're in, we're in Queens, New York, and just the crucible of a multiracial, multi-ethnic church, international church in Queens. And so that was that the context in the sense, the contextualization of theology and art was so helpful because of even where we were located over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what's crazy is that, cause as you just described those early years, like the church, outwardly seemed like it was booming. You were planting churches, multiplying, the church was growing, yeah. uh, was getting more and more kind of publicity for its work with the poor and everything. I mean, that was the ironic thing, it seemed like. Well, it, like you know, Drew, and many of your folks who are listening right now know, it can be wonderful on Sunday and hell on Monday. <laughs> on Monday, Saturday, this is horrible. And that's what we were. I think we looked tremendous on the surface and people are excited and coming to Jesus, but... Uh, when you got deeper into the leadership and what was really going on in our quality of lives, it was really hard and painful and chaotic. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I remember I heard this from you once, Pete. I don't know if you remember saying this, but, you know, a lot of times I think in church growth and multiplication, we hear this adage that healthy things grow. Mm. And, uh, but unhealthy things can grow as well, like yeah. cancer. I remember you sharing that, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I just, and, for you now to go back to the root of kind of the heartbeat of discipleship, which is at the core of multiplication. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you have this phrase, actually, you said that um, a lot of times the evangelical church is a mile wide and an inch deep. And you said that actually things are probably trending towards being a mile wide and half an inch. inch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'd just love to hear from you. Why, why do you think that is today? And actually, I'm not, I didn't originate that statement. I think it came originally from Richard Foster, who he got it from somebody else 25 years ago. Uh, I, I think it's grown only more problematic. The, the, the inch deep is quarter inch deep now. I, I think it's because it's the world we live in. I mean, it's just, it was a challenge in the days of Jesus. Just think of the parable of the four soils. And Calvin writes about how those four soils are people who are listening to the word of God in church. And so we're always going to have the dilemma of different types of soils, rocky, shallow, you know, thorny, and good soil. And we're living in a culture now that's, you know, where we're living in 21st century with everything from social media, new, new social media, new technologies, uh, you know, post-enlightenment, the pressure of fast and speed and hurry. Um that it has just been building. And, and let's face it, discipleship is really hard work. And that's what the 12 disciples found out. I mean, uh, they resisted it at every turn as well. So going to the cross and dying, which is the core of discipleship, following Jesus in that path, it's just hard. I mean, this is not, you can't program that. You, we, we can't, you know, we like things, we're, we're concerned about success by numbers and size 
and we look at externals. It's just, it's, it's human nature. Uh, it's definitely part of American Christianity that we've explored all over the world. And so it's almost like this, it's like we're pulled in this, uh, we're failing if we're not adding numbers and don't look great in the outside. And so who has time for this kind of serious discipleship that we're talking about? But as you know, Drew, and you've observed your own life, you end up going, you can't, you, you end up back to where you started anyway, because unless we're, people's lives are really being changed by Jesus deeply, uh, we just end up recycling the same old problems. Yeah. Um, that's so good. You know, like one of your critique of the American church today, I critique, I, again, I think it's a prophetic call. It was just so, it was so good because it was so different than so many of the voices, um, you know, related to church growth and how to be a dynamic church. Mm-hmm. And one of the sections you, you talk about that you just touched on is the crucified Jesus compared to the Americanized yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I was actually shocked at how clearly you, you talked about that. Uh, can you just elaborate that on that a little bit more? Um, yeah. What's interesting. So, so I, I actually, you know, I saw these seven marks of uh, a discipleship that deeply transforms people in a, in a, in a church culture. So my first one is be before you do. We can touch on that in just a moment. My second mark is follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. And so what's interesting is that actually came out of not a sociological study of American culture, which I'm not. It actually came out of a three to four year study in the gospel of Matthew around discipleship and looking at Jesus' struggle, tensions, challenges in discipling the twelve. And these themes kept coming up over and over and over again. And that's when I realized, oh, now I can, I just call it the Americanized Jesus, but it's actually like a worldly discipleship that was, the 12 had been so formed by their culture and their understanding of Messiah and what God was doing and wanted to do. And Jesus just, he steps in their lives and he, he calls them to this crucified Jesus and they just can't get it because they are, they have been so immersed in the worldliness of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious culture in which they were raised. So, so here, here it is, it, you know, it, it, the Americanized Jesus, I call it is to, we hear the call, the world's discipleship is be popular. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, you want to look great. And the Pharisees were always concerned about what people would, would see. And we're the same way. We're always concerned about what people think. And, and um, you know, how many books have been written about people pleasing, but Jesus says, basically reject popularity, just reject it and be popular with me. Uh, and Peter has a hard time with that. That's why he doesn't want to go to the cross. Mm-hmm. And in this Americanized Jesus, it's not just be popular, it's be successful and a successful measure by, you know, numbers. Uh, it looks good. And a very worldly definition of success. And Jesus basically says, you know, reject successism. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a God. And uh, no, you be a success with me and let me redefine it for you. Just do my will, whatever it means. Uh, and then it's reject greatness. You know, the world, you know, we want to be great. We want to get prizes. We want to be on stages. We want people to notice what we've done. And Jesus says, categorically, just reject all of that worldly greatness and, and actually identify and belittle, you know, like a little child. And then the world's discipleship is, is avoid suffering and failure. And they just avoid it. And, and again, just the last thing Peter wanted and James and John and the disciples, they, they did not want failure and suffering. And Jesus called them to take up their cross and die and follow him and embrace it. Uh, 
uh, and be faithful to me, says Jesus. So it's Jesus' discipleship. Is, it's just, it, it, it goes against ev- not just the you know, American culture, but it's all Western culture. It's, it's every culture. It was first century Jewish culture. And that's why it, it took three years for Jesus to mold them. And as you know, even at the crucifixion, uh, before the crucifixion, they're arguing about who's the greatest. You know, they're they're fighting between each other. Like it was, they got it intellectually. I'm sure they could preach it. Just like we can preach it. But it's really hard to get into our bones where it's like, no, I, I've I, I've rejected the world's definition of greatness and popularity and success, and I'm not going to avoid failures and and suffering. I'm I'm going to actually follow Jesus, and I, I'm I, I want to hear from him. You know, well done. You know, be popular and successful with him. But that is so radical. It's just so hard to get in our bones, and that's what. You know, that is just so we've got to get that in us as leaders or else we end up taking, making decisions that are really of mixed motive. And uh, it just it causes all kinds of pain. Uh, we reap what we sow. And, and uh, Jesus had to drive it out of the 12. He, he had to lead them to suffering and dark nights and the cross because they willingly were not going that path. And so I think it's a real I think it's a real core issue for us today. Um, as we approach all the stuff that we're confronting as pastors and leaders here in 2021. Hmm. Would you say, I mean, it's so good to hear that, you know, as a young, as a younger pastor, sorry, Pete, but as a younger pastor and having seen you lead in ministry and see you, you know, I, I witnessed you say no to certain opportunities because, and you would actually kind of pull me to the side and just talk about the temptations of, you know, the temptations in the wilderness or, you know, and um, that was so formative for me. And, you know, as I look today and obviously there's been so, so many stories of pastors, uh, well-known pastors who um, had a dark life in the shadows. And um, I, I would just love to hear, I mean, uh, everything you're talking about is really f- formative, I think, for young pastors and leaders. Do you think that the temptations have changed at all over the years, especially if you work with younger pastors? Or is it- I, I think actually it's it's the temptations of the wilderness. Mm. That's what we're talking about. The same temptations that Jesus confronted are the ones that each of us confront. It may look different in every generation, mm. but it's really the same fundamental tra- temptations of the of the evil one coming to us and offering us quick, you know, a quick fix, you know, turn these stones to bread, you can make it happen, you know, jump down, everyone will notice you, uh, you know, bow down for me just a moment, you'll have a massive church. And uh, it is the great, so, so again, we're, as pastors and leaders, we're going first. So I, again, my own life, I mean, just, we we planted a church in Queens, New York City. And so I was there 26 years, the lead pastor, but there were so many limits that we were confronted with. We were very committed to being a multiracial church, mm-hmm. bridging cultural, economic, uh, gender barriers. Well, you know, the fact that there was no parking, half hour to an hour to park, tightness of space, there was just tremendous limits around us. And then of course, not everybody wanted to be involved in racial reconciliation and all the challenges of that. And where we were located, we chose to locate ourselves in a neighborhood that was, was poor uh, out of a uh, you know, working class, out of a commitment to, uh, to live that out. So all these were limits. And I just realized, Oh, there's a lot of people that don't want to, they don't want to, 
They don't want to drive around for a half hour, 45 minutes looking for a parking space. They don't. And so I had to wrestle with God, what are you asking me to do? And that's when I realized, oh gosh, you know, so, so I struggle. I mean, this wasn't like, I, I just, oh, I got it. You know, I'm, I'm cruising on this thing. No, I was watching friends of mine. Uh, now again, I'm, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my, you know, I'm 60, I'm 64. I'm in a different, but I was struggling with it at 33 and 32 because I saw friends on conference circuits, getting free vacations to Hawaii, uh, you know, and writing, you know, writing books. I remember I wrote my first book and the editor said, you're a nobody. My, my, my friend was in publishing. He says, you know, Pete, no, you know, just, you know, like you're not on circuit. Nobody knows you. You're in Queens, New York. And probably this book's not going to go anywhere because it's just the reality, but we'll publish it. Cause we think you're saying something good. And you know? I said, Oh, good. But it was always very, always feeling like I'm, I'm by the world standards, I was a loser in what I was doing and I was failing. And I just had to constantly like go back to like, scripture and preach to myself like okay mm. you know, success pete is just do my will and do what i've asked you to do and and uh i just so it was it, it really it that that came out of my own crucible of just struggling to be faithful day after day you know week after week month after month year after year and i've had you know it's true you you were on staff with us for 10 years i had a lot of failure you know and i'm making my own mistakes along the way and um and I'm making some bad decisions. I did rush at times. And every time I rushed and tried to make something happen, I, you know, God lovingly, you know, slapped me down and disciplined me. It didn't let it happen. And I just felt, you know, God was so gracious in uh, preserving me along the way and holding me. And, and then I think we developed a, a community with a, a, that that's that community that helped because, you know, we're obviously we're, reinforcing certain values mm. uh but certain theology like theology of limits which i think for both of us drew is one of the great challenges of yeah. limits are a gift from god to ground us i just had to keep preaching that to myself over and over again and so there were certain texts that were extremely important like the temptations of the wilderness mm. and uh realizing no just listen to his voices you know stay stay with it and um and so and I, was, I was watching scandals go on. I've been a Christian 43, 44 years. I've been, I've been observing scandals my entire Christian life. I mean, three weeks, three weeks before we got married, the pastor who was going to marry us had to resign. Okay. Wow. So that was a, a scandal. But I, I, it's been happening. I've been, it's nothing new. It's just so public now. It's so disheartening. Mm. So, you know, so much of what you write about, which was, again, such a healthy corrective on my own soul. Um, and your books are ones that I keep coming back to. It's funny because I know you personally, and yet like I keep coming back to these same books because the culture that we swim in as pastors, especially young pastors and the temptations around them. Uh, I just realized like you're giving such a, again, a call being back to the things that you talked about being before doing spending time with God, embracing limits, which you just talked about, you know, reflecting on our family of origin, which is again, another mark uh, that you talk about, by the way, those seven marks of healthy discipleship that's outlined in your books. They're so helpful. Why, why do you think, because those things, those seven marks of healthy discipleship, they're hard for uh, our parishioners for sure. And they're also hard for pastors. Yes. And uh, why is it so important for pastors to really get this right, even before parishioners? Well, if we don't get it right, 
we can't give it to them. That's the core. I, you know, I have these, we have these three little sayings that I think summarize what we're about. What is emotionally healthy discipleship, which is you cannot give what you do not possess. Uh, you're all, you can only give what you do possess. So whoever, whatever you are is what you're going to give away. And then who you are is more important than what you do. And then finally is the state you are in is a state you will give to other people. Mm-hmm. So we can't get away from that. It's your person. You can preach whatever you like from the pulpit. I know I did it for years, but it, but it's not going to, it's not going to transform people because it's just words. Uh, and, but if our lives, what's in our lives is what our people will become. The mm-hmm. level of maturity and depth in us is what the level of maturity and depth is going to be in, a, in, in our people. The problem is we have all this pressure of so much to do. So we don't have time for our own discipleship and formation. And most of our formation, like for mine, was, you know, was primarily doing. It was I, I got to reach people for Christ. I got to plant churches. Uh, my education was primarily, you know, I think of, you know, seminary leadership conference was all about externals. Uh, and you know Hebrew, Greek, history, but managing the exter- external world and manipulating objects in a sense to move things forward. But there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the inner world. I didn't get taught a lot about how do I, how do I manage and grow in my inner world. And so the problem was that separation is what kills us. And so as pastors, we're we're on a we're expected to be doing machines. Uh, or and most of it's inside of us. This Pharaoh lives inside of us. I got to keep doing, you know, the place is going to fall apart. Uh, people will be disappointed in me. And uh, Jesus had all those pressures as well. But really the number one key for us and our churches, the most loving thing we can do is, is, is take, is us invest in our own discipleship and leadership. It's not narcissistic. It's actually the most loving thing we can do uh, for the people we're serving because they're going to be the beneficiaries uh, and we can say, like Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I remember my early years, I'd be preaching sermons about contentment, joy, you know, whatever, the peace of God. But I was not in any of those things because I was so exhausted and ragged. And But I would just trust, okay, Lord, I'm not living it, but hopefully they, they don't know it. And they don't, they don't know what's going on inside of me and they're going to get blessed. And of course, people, they're always blessed. They're blessed by a great illustration. You're always going to get some positive feedback. But the truth was people weren't changing. They, they really weren't. They just, they liked the sermons and uh, you know, I can hold a crowd, but that's not what we're, that's not what we're doing. We're not trying to hold a crowd. You know, we're not here to get, Oh, great sermon pastor. That's not why we're in this. Um, so that's why the, the, the first mark of be before you do is first. And again, th- this, I wrote this out of my, now it's been 26 years and we've worked with churches, not just around North America, but around the world. And so we've seen a lot and, and really these are universal challenges. And so when I, when I, when these seven, you know, marks were chosen and the first one being B before you do was very intentional because we don't get this one, right. B mm-hmm. before you do, you really can't do the rest of them because you don't really have time. Uh, you're rushing through it. So lots of people read, you know, and I'm not really, I read my books, but it doesn't necessarily change them. Like our friend Edwin said years ago to us, Drew, remember he said, I've read everything and I do nothing. <laughs> you know, he's a pastor, a friend of ours in Brooklyn. He's doing much better now. But it's easy to parrot material because we, we need material. We need so much material because we're preaching all the time. So we're constantly on the search. 
but I'm really not that interested in you getting a few free sermons from the book or some great illustrations. Mm-hmm. I, my, my, my heart is, and my, my mission and calling is to help pastors and leaders actually live this and then out of that, speak it yeah. uh, with some power, but it's just a slow process. Yeah. You know, another thing that I remember with you, Pete, was I remember you telling me that you take a Sabbath Friday night to Saturday night. Yeah. One of the reasons why the discipline of putting down your sermon, stopping, resting, delighting, contemplating. And I remember as you were kind of training myself, Rich Velotis, who's now the lead pastor at New Life, about preaching. One of the things that you would tell us is like, um, I, you said, I preach from my life now. And, um, and I didn't quite understand what that meant until I was in this position where I'm now preaching week to week where, or, or not week to week, but a lot of times throughout the year in the role that I'm in, I realized what you were basically saying was that you've just, the being before doing the deep well of communion with God is, is where you preach from and that you actually, so the anxiety around preaching like that anxiety dissipates because even Sabbath keeping for you, like it was a discipline to, to rest and not worry about it because you realize it's just your inner kind of your, your well with God that um, is able to preach with dynamism and power and real sense of leading by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you remember that. But- oh, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Because you are you and Rich are both such gifted communicators and I remember, you know, being a little bit older than you and I could see when, either one of you were like just riding on your gifts. Cause you can, you can, you've got the gifts to, to preach to thousands. And, uh, but that's not really what this is about. And so for me, one of the big, you know, the shift into this l- l- discipleship was recognizing, okay, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm limited in so many ways. And so I'm not going to have a perfect sermon. There is no perfect sermon. Um, I can't preach as good as some other great preachers out there. And that's not even the issue. The issue is just, what does it mean for me to be just Pete Scazzaro and, you know, preach out of just my unique person. But I want to, I want to give God from inside of me. And so with that, that slowing down was so drastic and it took so, so much faith. I still prepared for sermons, but not with the same level of anxiety, but I didn't have an opening introduction. Cause as you know, finding a good introduction can take a lot of time. Um, it wasn't about getting, we didn't have social media at the time when I was starting preaching, but I wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, um, trying to get clever one liners for Twitter. <laughs> I just let it all go. I just, but I had the heart of what God wanted to say to our people. Mm. And, coming through my life. And so Jerry used to always say to me, again, the big switch was in 1996 and then 2003. And I got into more silence and solitude. It was just, it was, Jerry used to say, your sermons are so much better. Uh, They didn't feel better technically or even quote exegetically, but she said it was just, you you were, you were a different person. Wow. And and it, it came out. Uh, And I just took it to heart and I, and I, you know, I, I listen to some really eloquent people. I mean, I, there's some amazing preachers out there, but that's not really what I, when I'm sitting there listening, I'm looking for a, a life, right? A, a life that's, it's been born out of, uh, and the passion comes out of that broken life out of which the scriptures has passed. And it's had time to gestate. 
I used to birth a lot of premature babies, you know, in my preaching, you know, because I didn't have time to let it gestate inside of me. And so it was rushed. And uh, so that was, you know, that was such a shift for me and liberating. Um, I, I wanted to feel good about my sermon more than I wanted other people to feel good about it, in a sense. I wanted to like, like I, okay, I just stated it, it was, it, it came out of me. It's, yeah, every sermon's incomplete, but I offered to God the best that I had. And I just was at peace with it. And because my, my shift focused, I want to build a healthy culture here out of which we're a gift to the world. I knew the sermons had a limited impact. I, I mean, I knew they're important, but there was so much more to building a great church that was going to make an impact on the world. And so I was now much more concerned about discipling people, uh, thinking about how we were doing, you know, formation, addressing things that were, did not belong in the new family of Jesus. So I, I just, even my focus began to shift of looking at what's really important here. Mm. And it used to be my sermon, my sermon, my sermon. I realized, no, it's important. And I always put a lot of time into it, but it's not, it's not everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so good, Pete. You know, I, um, so we've touched on some of these seven marks that you just talked about, by the way, we've gotten a few of your questions. We're going to get to those questions, um, with Pete soon. So just want to let you know, thank you for submitting your questions. You know, so seven marks of healthy discipleship be before you do what you mentioned, follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus, embrace God's gift of limits, uh, discover the treasures buried in grief and loss is number four. You know, I'd love to, because that's another thing that you you mentioned a lot about what's distinct about emotionally healthy discipleship is there's this integration, it seems, of uh, some of the, the harder parts of life, suffering, failure, grief, brokenness. Um, modern forms of discipleship don't seem to address these as much. Yep. Um, and yet these are things that are highly emphasized here with grief and loss, breaking from the power of the past, living out of weakness and vulnerability. Can you, can you just comment on that? Just the integration of some of those difficult, you know, the suffering, the failure, the grief. Yeah. I, I, I again, the, the questions you're being asked here too, how is this book different from emotional and spirituality? This book is meant, I wrote this for pastors and leaders. Okay. That was the audience. And, uh, uh, it's it's a high-level book about what would it look like to integrate. To me, these are core biblical truths that we do not pay attention to. Uh, we ignore in the American church, uh, the Western church, uh, and it has a, actually a long history. And I, and I went back, as I got on this journey, I went back to some of my professors uh, in seminary uh, to try to understand how did we get here, like that we ignore, for example, grief and loss, uh, when there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, when two-thirds of the Psalms are laments, when David commits a murder and adultery and writes about it in the Psalms, he's so broken and weak, he puts it out there in the public. Yeah, and I, you know, Paul's so clear about the fact I'm not a super apostle with an overrealized eschatology. I boast in my weakness that Christ's power might rest on me. And I, you know, it just seems so obvious when you look at scripture in some ways, but some ways I I I read it. I wrote a whole exegete, exegete, Hebrew exegesis paper on a, on a Psalm of Lament in seminary, but I never made the, I, I didn't do sadness personally. You know, I mean, I just, and no one ever made the application that this is something to integrate into our discipleship. Like the integration of grief and loss is so big in scripture. And it's, and you really can't grow into a spiritually mature disciple without actually 
embracing the gift of grief and loss and how God births treasures in us through it. And yet here I was in this graduate school, a great seminary, and like, we just never made the application. So I wanted to say, how did we get here? And so what I did learn from my historical theology professors and others was like, it goes back to, you know, Neoplatonism, Augustine, it's got a long history. And, uh, you know, again, other parts of the church in the world do it very well, but definitely in the West with bigger, better, faster, you know, we are just up and to the right. It's so much, we can't even see it because we swim in it. So who wants to do grief and loss? I mean, who wants to look at pain? Um, I don't. And so it's so, again, it's following Jesus is very counterintuitive. Uh, and um, uh, it, it just slows us down and it, comes get, it touches at the root of our own rebellion, our own self-will, our own attachments to so many things in the world. And so this is this is it's hard. It's this is hard work. This isn't uh, uh, this is to, this is like Jesus calling the crowds to take up their cross and follow him, to love him more than family, brother, sister, mother, brother, and all that. It, it is it is the call of discipleship, not just a call to accept Jesus. It is a, it is a call to follow Jesus and. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how we're going to go forward with all the challenges that are cascading upon us at the church right now. If we don't get serious about discipleship and, of course, leadership formation within our churches, um, I, I just don't see a great future for the American church. I think we'll just be assimilated to the culture more and more and more. You know, it's it's the integration of the things that you're talking about, grief, loss, lament, sadness, that I think it's so appropriate for this moment that we're in with the pandemic. Um, I mean, it was, which is one reason why I think this, this book is, it's such an interesting time that it's being released. It's when there's incredible pain and loss and sadness, and people are probably wondering how do we integrate this into our spiritual lives and journeys? Yes. yeah. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? And just even the pandemic and yeah, I, I think that all these crises from you know the racial justice, at least awakening for so many around the country, um, the, the the clarity of the global inequities that are before us. Of course, the, the tragedy of COVID nineteen and this pandemic, which just closed the church globally all at the same time about a year ago, and different levels of opening now, but just so much grief. I mean, 550,000 people have died so far in the United States alone. I mean, that is an enormous grief. And so, but here we are, we're leading churches and I, I've had people come to me. I last week, this week I had a, you know, denomination come to me and say, how do we, we don't have a theology for grief <laughs> and how do we even deal with this? And the guy who was leading, it's been, he's been a you know, Christian many, many years, decades pastor. He says, and he was leading this interview and he says, I, I must admit, I, the chapter on discover the treasures of grief and loss alone just stopped me because I realize in my Pentecostal charismatic tradition, we just don't do this. We do victory in Jesus. And uh, yet we're all kind of stuck right now. We just want to move on post pandemic and grow the church like we did. And it's like, we can't like life isn't letting us uh, do it. And so it was, it was a really rich conversation, but I think these are all invitations from God to us. I think God's love is coming to us through it all of, of it's a new day for the church and how we approach mission, uh, 
hey, maybe we will be more like the early church, right? In the first couple of centuries, scattered, but in the world, missionally planting, expanding, and not so much bringing everybody to our meetings and being so concerned about how many people in a, in a room, um, but concerned about, again, discipleship. Uh, and I think of the early centuries, how they developed a catechumenate among, among the, because of the persecutions that were coming to the church in the early centuries, that they developed a very serious discipleship called a catechumenate and, and to teach people to be with Jesus. Because otherwise, when the persecutions came, so many of them lapsed or denied Christ. And then they wanted to get back in the church. And it caused so much friction. If you read a very fascinating thing in the early centuries. So they, they got very serious about what it meant to be a disciple and forming people. And I think we've got to get the same way. Very serious about forming people because uh, I don't expect the days that are going to be coming uh, are going to be more, what's the word, uh, Christian friendly. Yeah. I think the pressure the church is going to be under and our people is going to be greater as the years pass. The secularization of culture is so rapid with technology. I just can't imagine what it's going to be to lead in 20 years from now or 30 years from now or 40 years from now. Um, uh, we had better have people rooted in Jesus uh, with the different challenges that are going to be coming. Uh, or else uh, I think we'll just be absorbed, you know, into the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I was reading an article just, you know, a couple of weeks ago about genetic cloning and the advances they're making on that, that people can choose to have babies that are, you know, God forbid babies with disabilities, but even they want certain types of babies with intellect and athleticism and et cetera. And, I, and our ability to actually do that is, is, is rapidly uh, increasing. Sure. And there's going to be a lot of ethical questions with that you know, in the future. And of course, people with any kind of disability or on a lower end of that spectrum, what's going to happen to those people? And I just, these are all, so there's so many ethical issues that are going to be facing us in the decades to come. There's lots right now. Uh, and how do we respond to people doing gender reconstructive surgeries? You know, I mean, gender, gender challenge and marriage. There's so many challenges before us that we've got to ground people deeply in Jesus and scripture. Uh, it's not, a, it can't be about a consumer Christianity. It's just yeah. it's not going to fly. It's not going to work. It's not going to make a difference. We'll just have a crowd of people, but the, but the culture will still continue to go down to hell in a, you know, in a handbasket. Mm. Yeah. And really what you're calling us to is this tethering to Jesus in a significant way in not a shallow kind of, you know, easy believism way, but really calling us to, to be tethered to Jesus. You know, one of the things that I've really appreciated about you, Pete, um, and what you write about in your book, actually in that seventh kind of mark of healthy discipleship, when you talk about um, brokenness leading out of weakness and vulnerability, yeah. you know, what was cool to read was you, you actually gave some specific examples from your own life that you're praying through about how to do that. <laughs> and you made a list. And one of the things was like your, um, now that you're an older pastor learning from the next generation yeah, and like treating your adult children like peers. And it was, it was actually, when I was reading that list, it just kind of dawned on me, like you're someone who has taken these principles and you know, the, the principle of weakness and vulnerability, and you have reflected on it, pondered it and now applied it to your own life where now you're thinking about it the way that you're, you know, interacting with Rich and I, you know, the way that you're interacting with um, your adult children. And um, I just love that about kind of how you've tried to, as, as whenever you, what you've modeled to me was like really 
not only just being, uh, you know, a sayer of the word, but someone who does what it says. And can you just comment, like, what, what are the steps to go from just it being an idea to, to this being implemented to the point where like you're writing in your book about like, Hey, this is how I'm wrestling through it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at, this is, I, 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 I use this illustration towards the end of it. I look at this theology that we call emotionally healthy discipleship as a operating system. In other words, it's a, it's a paradigm, a theological one that I'm, so therefore I'm, I'm following Jesus. Right. And so um, because I'm following him, I'm on a journey that at some point I'm going to pass through the other side and see him face to face. But I am like, I know so little. I understand so little. I'm I'm a beginner, like Carl Barth says, we're always beginners. And so, for example, you brought up weakness and vulnerability. Uh, and so, yeah, like um, I, I think as one gets older, and we get where we're more limited and we, we see our, if you're aware and slow down enough, you see, I've got so many limits and weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Uh, I'm so dependent on God here. And, uh, but I'm, I'm, I, so for example, learning from you guys, I mean, of course I, I've got, I'm, I'm learning a ton from younger folks. I feel like I'm growing more as a Christian now that I have at any point in my Christian life, I, 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 I'm, I love it. I'm, I'm excited about the future. And uh, that's why I want to give people who are, who are 20s and 30s and, you know, 40s, like you got a lot ahead of you. I mean, your best years are ahead of you. And you want to have a long view of this thing and, um, you know, an eternal view. Uh, but but uh, I, I'm always, quote, breaking the power of the past, for example, uh, my family of origin. So I'm learning how to age in the new family of Jesus, you know, and how do you live out your 60s and my 70s? And when my, as my body continues to diminish and uh, you know, what does it mean to, to, to grow older and serve Jesus quote full-time paid or unpaid? Um, yeah, we don't believe in retirement. We believe in transitioning, uh, to serve Christ. And, you know, just, just, um, uh, what does it mean to have children now that we're, we're we are peers? Um, I'm not their parent in a sense, telling them what to do anymore, but I let them, you know, they're following Jesus differently than I am. You know, they, they, they're doing life differently. They're not living the life I thought they should live. And, uh, what does it mean to release them to be who they uniquely are in God for their futures versus my agendas for them and always kind of conditionally judging them and conditionally loving them? Uh, and there are so many developmental discipleship issues in each stage of life that we go through that I, I feel like EH discipleship gives you at least a handle to wrestle with them and say, yeah, what does it mean to move into your 20s, you know, as you become a young adult and your 30s, as you begin to move in your career and not get crazy with it and work 90 hours a week and, you know, hit middle age and you realize you're not going to be the superstar like you thought, a Nobel Prize winner and uh, embracing your limits and all that. And just there's so, there's so many life tasks that one has to confront. And to me, giving people a biblical framework for it, how do we do things differently in the new family of Jesus? This is, what, this is why we exist as a church. We're building this radical counterculture. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I first see myself as a contemplative, like David, my, my, my mission in life is one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek that I may gaze, uh, you know, upon the beauty of the Lord, you know, seeking his face. He is my life. And so that that's like uh, my first mission. That, that's my calling. That's my eternity. And, and then everything flows out of that, you know, my marriage and uh, our family and, and serving Jesus in the world here. But uh, it's very much informed by a 
clear biblical theology that keeps me grounded, focused, and hopefully a learner, uh, you know, along the way. Mm, yeah. Um, what would you say, Pete? Like, there's some questions here. So you've addressed, you know, the personal discipline and commitment. <coughs> first a follower of Jesus and a contemplative, you know, and that each of us need to make that our first work. I know that that was something that you drilled into our minds as pastors, as young pastors who were under you, like you were, your first work is to be a contemplative. Um, in terms of like uh, developing emotionally healthy discipleship in your church, yeah. and there's even questions here about like, all the different emotionally healthy uh, spirituality resources. What, what are your, what are your suggestions related to how to use those resources? Um, and I would love to share after you as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll, I mean, so understand emotion, this book, emotionally healthy discipleship and the emotionally healthy leader book. This was, this one's about, this is written for leaders and pastors. And this is about, uh, uh, um, giving you a framework of, what it means to build this kind of discipleship and leadership culture. Uh, but it has to be executed. It's got to be implemented. So it's a great place to start. Well, it's a great, you know, great reference books, but it's got to be implemented. You have to do it. Uh, and so we developed what's called the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course, which has two parts to it, uh, to implement the theology we're talking about here. So you can't just read a book and get it. I mean, the books are good for ideas and we're getting some concepts, but we had to actually live into it uh, and do the material. And so over these 26 years, we developed these two courses and one called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and the other is called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And uh, they're meant for the whole church, but we as leaders have to live it first. And so we always say to people, you want to do that course, part one and two, for you and your leadership first uh, and dive into the material. And then you're kind of doing theology as you're doing it. So you're practicing, for example, silence and stillness, mm -hmm. Sabbath rhythms, uh, and then you're reflecting on it, you know, before God, but you're, you, you don't want as a leadership give something that you're not taking in. So yeah, so Drew, why don't you share a bit what we've done, what you've done in your own church and the churches you're overseeing. And uh, yeah, uh, well, those, this, this, the discipleship course, which are those two eight-week um, courses, we run those continually throughout our church. And our goal is for each person in our church to have been through the course, hopefully lead the course, and by leading the course, be discipling others into a deeper life of emotionally healthy discipleship. The first eight-week course is from the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that comes along with the day-by-day, -day, which is a daily office that's practiced alongside uh, the course, and then a workbook, which is part of that eight-week course. And you know, to sum that up, that's really about uh, how to live a discipleship below the surface um, that goes deep below the surface in how to love God well. And so, which is the first commandment, the great commandment. And uh, of course, the second part of the great commandment is where the second course comes in, which is basically emotionally healthy relationships, which is an eight week course, which uh, comes with a workbook along with the day by day, which is a companion devotional that we go through while we're going through that eight week course. And so our church, we're continually running those courses to embed this culture. Um, and of, of course, these courses are basically a tool towards building that kind of culture. And so I personally am regularly going through those courses and leading the courses myself, going through individuals, going through the course with different individuals that I myself am discipling 
Um, we are having our entire staff go through the courses as well, just because, again, we want to embed this kind of culture. Now, and this is where these courses are simply tools to build all the marks that Pete's talking about here, the seven courses. Now, this book is so tremendous because this is what we're going to give to our leaders um, to read um, every uh, table leader or group leader who's leading the course. We want them to read this book as well, because this gives the underlying foundation around um, all of the themes that we're going to be hitting upon in the course and how we implement them. And I think this resource is a tremendous one for that. Um, meanwhile, we actually have a church planting residency where we go through um, building culture with church planting residents. And in that course, in that uh, setting this residency where, again, I'm discipling these church planning residents, we actually read through Emotionally Healthy Leader as well. So, which is, uh, if you haven't picked up Emotionally Healthy Leader, it's a phenomenal book about emotionally healthy leadership. Um, and and then uh, we've got different women's groups that are going through Emotionally Healthy Women that was also written by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro as well. Um, and all of these courses, these are simply tools that are used to embed a culture. Um, because we want to be this kind of, like, I, I realize I need to go through the courses because Pete knows this about me. I'm someone who has a really hard time embracing my limits. If you were to look at my genogram, my family of origin, uh, you know that there's some deep things in me related to achievement, related to workaholism, related to this chip on my shoulder that I need to continue to work and work and do more work and achieve. And like that tide, I need as much help as I can get to follow Jesus well and to not succumb to the messages of my family of origin or the culture around me that's comparing myself to the other church pastor. I need as many resources and guides and prayer to come before God, um, to be able to have the courage to say no to those things, to, to regularly take Sabbaths, to be regularly in contemplation and in silence. And these courses have been helpful for me as well as for our team and in helping us do that, in building that kind of culture, in building a language of how do we do silence and day alone with God? And how do we do, um, again, um, healthy relationships well? So I, I'd say this is where all of these books have been incredibly helpful for us to embed this culture um, into our church team. And it's not just a kind of like, oh, we've, oh yeah, we, we read Emotional Healthy Spirituality and we're good. Um, like, that misses the point of what this is. This is a culture that we're trying to build. And so this is how we've been using these resources. And, and one of the questions Drew related is how do I keep this from being a program? Mm -hmm. And it's really, that's, you know, I'm not a, you know, in New York, we're very cynical towards programs. Always have one. Yeah. very anti-program. Uh, but uh, what happened, two things, one, many, many years ago when I was pastoring, uh, we ended up doing alpha because I wanted to keep evangelism, uh, uh, as a central value in as a church as it grew larger. And so we found Alpha very helpful to say, we're going to do this each year, a couple times a year for seekers. And and then as we developed emotionally discipleship over the years, it, and we wanted everyone, we realized we want to keep this in the culture. We are about discipleship. Um, and so that's when we developed this course, because we, we need it for ourselves to keep the values of serious discipleship as top um, in everything we're doing. And then, of course, we found in other churches too, you needed something, some way to build a culture and an anchor. So we ended up quite, quite kicking and screaming, developing the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course, but we needed it. And so 
That's why we say, if you're not living it, please don't bring it to your church. You don't have to, look, we're, all, we're all in the process of living it, but we don't want, you know, if you bring it and you're not living it, or you've got someone teaching it that isn't living it, or your church isn't in it at all, it's just a program. And mm-hmm. programs don't change people. Programs are just programs. We, we've been through thousands of programs, right, in the last few years alone in the United States. So it's, it's life on life that changes people. But we do... But the purpose of this is to be a, a tool and a support for that life on life, which means please go slow with it. So, you know, begin to do just yourself and some leaders first. Um, and if you're not ready yet, just wait. There's no rush. God's not in a rush. The kingdom will get built. Uh, but we don't want to be giving what we're not possessing. That's the key principle. Yeah. And Pete, what I, what I notice about even these courses that we've embedded at our church um, at Hope is we offer the course and that's basically what's taught and caught. And I realize when building culture, there's both what's taught and it might look like a program, but that's simply the way to organize embedding a culture. But there's also what's caught. What's caught becomes just the way, hopefully, I'm living my life. Um, what's caught is like, people know that I've got an alert that I'm not going to be responding on my Sabbath. You know, like there's, I think there's a culture that continue, that gets caught when we yeah. begin to live this out. And I realized in my relationship with you, Pete, like, you know, we're going to have a conversation soon about just some realizations you're making about limits. And as you know, that this has been a, a heavy kind of burden and something that I've been wrestling through. And we're just having this conversation offline and that's just caught from yeah my relationship with you, because I know that you're someone who's constantly pondering these things about God's gift of limits. So exactly. So even the way you, you, you supervise, even a volunteer, let's say you have a volunteer who's, who's overseeing your sound system, mm-hmm. right? You, you're you're going to meet with them and you've got work to talk about, like getting there on time, et cetera. But probably the first question you're going to start asking is how are your rhythms of being with Jesus? You're going to be asking questions about their inner life, not simply their performance. You, you won't separate any longer their inner life from what they're doing, whether they're volunteers or paid staff. So it's going to impact every, as you get this into you, it impacts every area of your life. And once you know people's vulnerabilities or family histories or family of origin. So I can think of one person, you know, I I know well that when she came on staff, you know, she came from a a, a background with abuse, et cetera. And she didn't, you know, she just had a really tough upbringing, but she's a wonderful leader. So the first question we'd ask her is how are you doing in, you know, not just taking care of yourselves, but just investing in yourself. Mm-hmm. That was just something she didn't feel like she was quote worthy of. And so we're helping people in their discipleship very intentionally and specifically out of their journey. And again, the course gives us some tools to do that. But yeah, the ramifications are, are gigantic. Mm-hmm. Pete, we have a question here. If, if the head leadership in your church or region is resistant to EHS, what do you do if you are also, if you are also a leader in your church? Yeah, I, I think, you, you know, uh, it's normal to be, first of all, to be resistant is understandable. If someone had mentioned to me emotional health, anything uh, prior to 1996, I would have said, you liberal, cycle babble, <laughs> Christian you. So, I mean, I get it because we've been formed a certain way. So I would say, first of all, you know, be patient and gracious I, I, I would encourage probably a way to approach it is, is I always use, we always use the word pilot. We always say to people, you know, you want to call it a pilot when you do something, because 
you want to say, we're going to pilot it and see if God uses it to help change some people's lives or our lives. But if it doesn't, we're going to throw it out the window. Mm. So there's no commitment there. Uh, I think we always, you want to approach things biblically. It, the issue to me is theology, what mm. scripture is saying. And we keep that front and center because if it's not biblical, we shouldn't do it. Um, and if it's not changing people's lives in the church, you don't want to be doing it either. Uh, and I, so I think you want to go, that's why you say slow. To change a culture takes seven to 10 years. Yeah. So you got to have that kind of a long view. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you can expect a few people to be resistant, perhaps. Uh, and I, because it's, first of all, sometimes it's very scary for some. You don't know all the reasons inside. I just had a lot of bad brain. And I just had so much, I was just taught some things that to be suspicious of anything that wasn't good, you know, reformed, you know, ways of doing things. You know, there's a very, very narrow construct that things could be put in. And uh, change is hard. Change is hard for people. Yeah. And Pete, I, this is why I'm so grateful that you wrote this book, because I think this is a great book actually for denominational leaders and pastors just to get the theological underpinnings and background around uh, why this discipleship is so needed and kind of a theological, biblical kind of basis for it. So, um, yeah, thanks for creating resource. I think it's I think it'll be, a, hopefully it's a tremendous gift. And I would say to read it, continue to practice it. And if you can, I think this would be a great resource to actually give to someone who might be resistant, just to read it, to see where the gaps might be. Uh, or if there are any disagreements, and I know that Pete, you'd be open to that as well. Absolutely. Send us your, send us your questions. Because <laughs> it's all, nothing news under the sun, everybody. It's yeah. all, questions are great. Struggles are great. And uh, you want to invite people to, to ask them. Yeah. Um, and lastly, I, Pete, I, I just wanted to comment because obviously I've been sharing about my own journey. Like my, I, so I was part of new life for 10 years, kind of living under this leadership. And then we left to plant a church. And frankly, after I left, um, I would reach out to Pete and Jerry <laughs> and I would basically write an email usually. And it was something like this. It was like, thank you so much because I would not be where I am without you. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry for not um, heeding in my, or as much as I need to, especially now that I'm in the role that I'm in. And what's been a, just a interesting journey for me is it's a, after I left new life, I actually valued uh, emotionally healthy discipleship even more <laughs> to the point where um, if it sounds like I've been gushing and I'm a raving fan, you know, 10 years removed from my time in new life, it's because uh, I am deeply indebted to um, Pete, you and Jerry and the ways that you guys have um, modeled what discipleship that goes below the surface looks like. And I just want to say thank you for that for me personally. And I know that I'm a better pastor, a better husband, and a better father, um, hopefully a better colleague. You can ask our staff about that because of you and your investment in my life. And um, that's why I'm so grateful that you've written this down. So I pray and hope that other leaders can also have a similar experience of this. Um, so um, yeah, there's any final words, Pete, here as we close? Oh, no, thank you, everybody. May the Lord bless you uh, in this journey. And uh, please email us with any questions you might have uh, at info at emotionallyhealthy.org. Glad to chat with you or Drew or through Exponential. 
Uh, we're in a great partnership with Exponential and love Exponential and her mission. Uh, and uh, we'd love to serve you in any way that we can. Yeah. Grace and peace, everyone. Blessings.